Good morning, everyone. My name is Dave. It's great to be here with you this morning. And if you are a guest with us today, I would love the opportunity to meet you after the service, if you don't mind sticking around for a few minutes. Uh, this is actually the second service that uh, Amanda, Peter, and I have done this morning. We were at State Fair this morning and um, had a great time doing a little service there for some of the employees and vendors and uh I want to thank those of you who prayed for us. We really, we really felt those prayers when we were there uh, this morning. That means a lot, lot to me. So, this last week, I actually, yeah, this last week we, my family traveled to Omaha, Nebraska, to visit my family. And uh, my parents live there. My sister's family lives there. And on the way there, it's about an eight, eight or nine hour drive. My wife did something that really surprised me. She read an entire book cover to cover. And it wasn't, I mean, it was, it wasn't a children's book. It wasn't a novel, but it was like a good sized book. And she just, she, she was really engaged in this book and she, she read the whole thing and, um, got a lot out of it. The book is, uh, is called Them. And the author is John Sertalic. If you could put the next slide up, that's what the cover looks like. I've, I'm about halfway through it. And, uh, it's a really good book. And one of the, uh, amazing, John Sertalic, by the way, did our men's retreat a couple years ago, three years ago. Some of you might remember that. Um, really, the most, I think, engaging part of this book is John tells this story about how he met his biological father. So as it turns out, John um, never really knew his father. When he was 10 years old, his mom came to him and sort of out of the blue told him that the man he thought he was, that thought he thought was his dad his whole life it was actually not his real dad. It was his stepdad. And then his real dad was some truck driver that was passing through town and she had a fling with and never saw again. And so as you can imagine, that changed John's life. And he began thinking that his birth and even his whole existence might be might have been just one big mistake. You know, because nobody involved in his birth intended for him to exist. So he began thinking that his life was one big mistake. His real father was a total mystery to him. He didn't know his dad. His dad didn't know him. For all he knew, his dad did not even know he existed. And that made him feel really restless. And so for over 20 years, he was haunted by the thought that he was never supposed to be born. And finally, he decided he couldn't live like that anymore. So he began the long and at times painful search for his real dad. And this was when he was in his late 30s, early 40s, I think, that he started looking for his dad. I tell you that uh, story because I believe that many people are living with a kind of spiritual re- restlessness from never knowing their true father. They don't know God. They aren't sure if God knows them. In fact, many people believe that God is just too busy to care about their insignificant life, and they might even wonder if God knows that they exist. And so many people would kind of give up on God because of that. And they turn to other people for significance because they need someone to know them and to love them. They just need someone to open up to. They need someone to talk to. They need someone to come home to. They need someone who will notice them and listen to the insignificant details of their life and actually care. You know, we all need that. But here's the thing. There's no way to really be known and loved by another person unless you are willing to show them 
who you are all the way to the bottom. You have to let that person see you, even the dirty parts and the ugly parts, all the way through. And that's really hard to do because what if they see you and then leave? What if they see you and then decide that you are not worthy of their love? What if they see you and then decide that they don't want to see any more? What if they learn about the dirty stuff at the bottom and then decide that they don't want to know anymore about you? I think we've all wrestled with that tension. You know, we want to be known. We want to be loved. But at the same time, we're afraid of showing ourselves, the real you, to other people. All the way to the bottom. So today we're going to read a really a magnificent psalm. We've been in the psalms all summer, and today we're we're going to focus on Psalm 139. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn them on or turn to Psalm 139. And this is a psalm about the God who sees us and knows us, and this incredible knowledge and presence of God has the power to change you at the deepest level so that you're no longer afraid to be known by others. And so we're going to start, this psalm is broken up, it's 24 verses, it's very neatly broken up into six, uh, I'm sorry, four passages of six verses each, and so that's how we're going to read it. We're just going to take six verses at a time as we go through, and we're going to listen to what God would say to us this morning. And I'm going to pray before we, before we dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, God, that you know us and that you see us. We thank you for who you are, and we pray today, God, that you would change our minds about you and that you would remove our fears and call us into your presence so that we can know you as you truly are and so that we can be known and unafraid. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, the way that I would summarize these first six verses is simply this. God knows everything about me. He knows everything about me. Absolutely everything. And as the author of the psalm, David, is reflecting on this, he decides that the fact or reality that God knows everything about me, it's, it's too wonderful, he says. It's too wonderful for me. Now, the word wonderful in our modern vernacular is sort of a fluffy word. I don't hear men using this word very often. Um, in, in my circle of uh, relationships anyway, the word wonderful is usually employed by women to describe an experience that was relaxing or freeing or heartwarming or encouraging or something like that, generally speaking. This is not the meaning of wonderful here. I want you to know that. To the best of my knowledge, the Hebrew word that's translated wonderful literally means to to separate or to distinguish is what the word means. So what David is not saying is that he's not saying, isn't it wonderful that God is always there and knows everything about me? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? That's not what he's, that's not what he's saying. 
In fact, this reminds me of a conversation I had with my cousin. This last week we were visiting family, as I said, and we were talking about, I don't know how we got in this conversation, but my cousin's wife told me that every so often their three-year-old wakes up in the middle of the night and wanders into their room and stands at their bedside and stares at her while she's sleeping. And her, her she's like at eye level with her mom. And, and, her, and then my cousin's wife, Natalie, will wake up and there's Cora staring at her in the middle of the night. Totally freaks her out. She like screams and everything. It, Cora, she's watching her mom sleep. Okay, she's watching her sleep. That's not wonderful, it's freaky, is what it is. Okay? And the reason I tell you that, that is because that's sort of how David is describing the idea that God sees him when he's sleeping. That God sees him every moment of every day. It's not wonderful to him. For, like we would think of wonderful. What he's really saying is God's presence is too much for me. His knowledge of every detail of my life freaks me out. I can't handle it. I can't attain it. It's different than anything I've ever known. I don't even know how to process it. That's what he's saying. I remember years ago I was attending, um, when I, this is when I was in college, I was attending a small church and we would have prayer meetings and the whole church, which was about 25 or 30 people, would come together on a somewhat regular basis and we would pray together about once a month. And this would go on for hours. And um, I remember this one, it was mostly young people. There's not many people over the age of 30. And this one girl in particular, she was in her mid-20s, she was a godly woman, loved Jesus. And I, I still remember her and her, the per, kind of person she was, just a great disciple of Jesus. And I remember this one prayer meeting where she was really concerned about her flowers. Her flowers weren't blooming. She was just really upset about her flower garden. And she was at, pleading with us from the bottom of her heart to pray and intercede for her and to God and ask God to take care of her flowers. And I remember thinking at the time, as if God cares about your flowers. Like, who who really cares about your I mean, it's your flowers. Doesn't God have more important things on his mind? Doesn't God have more important things to do with his time than to listen to us? That's how I thought about that. And you know why? And I realized I was wrong. I realize now I was wrong for thinking that way. You know why? Because I was uncomfortable with the idea that God cared more about my life than I do. And that God is actually more involved in the details of my life than I am. That made me very uneasy. And so I pushed back against it. I didn't want to take part in that. And it still does, when I think about this, it still does make me uneasy at times. God's intimate and thorough knowledge of every detail of our life is threatening to many people, and it was to David. Listen to the next passage as David talks about getting away from God's presence. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in shale, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light be night around me, about me. Even the darkness is not dark to you. 
The, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So this next series of verses, David's building on God's knowledge, which we would call God's knowledge, his, uh, his omniscience, his knowledge, his, his, he's all-knowing. He knows everything. And this second passage focuses more on God's omnipresence, that God is all-present. God is always with me. That's what David is saying. God is always with me. There's nowhere I can go to get away from God's presence. This passage made me think back to Genesis, which most of the Bible makes me think back to Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 3, where there was, after Adam and Eve had sinned, we're told that God was walking in the garden. And Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. This was something they were used to, something they loved, something they lived for, the presence of God. But once they sinned, they didn't want the presence of God around anymore. They covered up. They, they hid themselves. They just wanted to get away from God's presence. Before sin, God's presence was the best thing in their life. After sin, it's the worst thing. And this is still true today. This is still true of us as human beings. We are constantly scrambling away and hiding from God's presence in order to deal with our sin. And of course, it's all an illusion. It never works. There's no escaping God's presence. And so what we try to do is we fill our calendars and we busy ourselves with all kinds of things. We fill our lives with all kinds of distractions so that we can at least numb ourselves to God's presence. And if we we think that if we can numb ourselves to God's presence in our lives, then we will be able to avoid feeling ashamed and vulnerable and exposed all the time to God's holiness. The thought of God's face, God's presence and God's face, sort of the same idea. The thought of God's face always being in front of you is suffocating to some people. It might be suffocating to you or me at times. In Job 13, 20 through 21, uh, Job understood this. He said, Job is speaking to God. He says, Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me and stop frightening me with your terrors. Job's life had unraveled so much that he didn't want God involved in his life anymore. He just wanted some space. He wanted to run and hide from God, and we do too sometimes. We want space to be ourselves. We want space to explore our identity, to find ourselves, to pursue our dreams. We want to live, honestly, we don't want to live every moment for the glory of God and the presence of God. So what do we do? We scramble. We find other ways to occupy our time. We fill our lives with things that can get our minds off of God, but it never works. And here's why. Because only God knows who you are. He knows you better than you. He knows what you were made for. Only God knows who you really are. So there's no use running or hiding from him to find yourself. If you want to find yourself, find God. If you want to know what you were made for, find God. If you want to pursue your dreams, find God. If you want to live a life of significance, find God. Find his presence. Long for it and ask for it. I mean, think about this. God is not constrained by time. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about time and how short our lives are, like a blip on the, on the screen, a blip on the a mist? James said, God is not constrained by time. Every, your entire life is right there before him in a moment. 
God sees you before you were born. And he sees you now. He saw you as a child. He sees you in your 80s if you're blessed enough to live that long. Do you know who you are? In all, are you the same person in all those phases of life? No, you're not. You change in many ways. What we see is we see ourselves right now. That's what we see. We see ourselves right now. We see our life right now. And we see it dimly. We don't even see it that clearly. God sees your whole life. It's right in front of him as clear as day. He knows who you are. He knows what you were made for. And, and it's here that we run into some trouble. Because on the one hand, I am uncomfortable with the idea that God knows everything about me and is with me wherever I am. That makes me a little uneasy. But there's another part of me that desperately wants to be seen and heard and known. We all want that. That's why loneliness is always a bad outcome for us. Nobody really wants to be alone. You might hear people say they do from time to time, but nobody wants to live with a sense of loneliness. Nobody... Have you ever met someone who was truly alone and felt like nobody really cared? I mean, that's a horrible place to be. Some people don't even make it through that. Every human being wants to be seen and heard and known and loved. Have you ever had a job where you felt dispensable? Have you ever had a job where you felt like they could go on fine if you weren't there? Maybe you were the new person or the one with the least amount of experience or education or whatever and no one seemed to listen to you or care about what you thought or nobody seemed to care about your ideas. They just wanted you to do your job and be quiet and, and you felt used. You felt ignored. You felt like if you weren't there, no one would notice. Have you ever felt that way at your workplace? Have you ever felt that way in a church? Have you ever felt that way in a marriage? It's not the way it was supposed to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And that's why marriage is such a honorable, it's such an honorable and sacred union because in marriage, you have found another human being who's actually choosing to spend the rest of their lives seeing, hearing, and knowing you. In the marriage covenant, you're basically saying, I am dedicating the rest of my life to seeing you and hearing you and knowing you. And that thrills me. Wouldn't that make a great marriage vow? Just that. It's short and simple. And that is God's marriage vow to us. That's basically God's promise to us. He sees us, he hears us, he knows us. And he wants more. He doesn't leave us. This is one of the many reasons I think Jesus said that in order to be, in order to, to see and be part of God's kingdom, we have to become like little children. Jesus said that on a number of occasions. And, and one thing that Jesus was probably talking about, a, a couple qualities in particular of, of children, but there's so many things about children that Jesus loves. So many things. One thing that makes children so unique is that they love to be seen and heard and known. All children do. 
Three-year-olds are always saying to their parents and grandparents and anyone willing to, they're always saying, watch me. Watch me, daddy. Watch me, mommy. Watch me, auntie. Watch me, watch me, watch me. And, you know, eventually I'm like, I know, I saw it. I already saw it. I saw it 50 times, you know. But that's a beautiful thing. And then, because something happens as they get older. Children become adolescents and then teenagers. And then they stop saying, watch me. They say, leave me alone. And then when they're grown-ups, they stop saying, watch me. Why? Because of fear. Because of fear. They don't, they really do want to be known and seen and heard, but they're afraid that if the clo- those closest to them see them fail or see them at their worst and knew everything about them, they might not love them anymore. They might not accept them anymore. So they scramble. Even kids do it. Kids do it. Teenagers do it. Parents do it. We've all done it. This is why some of you work long hours. This is why some of you will not pursue meaningful relationships with other people. This is why some of you are trying to do too much because you're afraid of letting people down. This might be why some people are obsessed with their body. It's all scrambling. There's no rest or peace with God, and so we try to find that. We try to find that acceptance somewhere else. It never works. There is nowhere you can go where God will not find you. And then the next set of verses here, David sort of surrenders to this reality. He kind of just says, okay, I'm done running. Here's what he says beginning in verse 13. For you formed, for God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So here David is saying, God created me and sustains me. He created me and sustains me. And when you hear that phrase, many times we we read this passage and we read this phrase, unformed substance, that God saw our unformed substance or our frame when we were being made in secret. That word literally means embryo. He's talking about when we were just embryos, when we at the moment of conception. And and when you hear that, you probably think about abortion, don't you? And that's okay. I mean, this is not abortion is not even in David's mind. This wasn't really an issue then, but it comes to our minds today because of the world we live in now. What does this passage teach us about abortion? It's really not complicated. It teaches us that when a person has an abortion and they choose to end a child's life before they are born, that person is taking the place of God. They're acting as God. Because in the psalm, God is saying, I formed you. It was, it was no accident. I've been over your life from the moment of conception, overseeing the whole process. I intricately weaved you together in your mother's womb. And I've chosen the amount of days for you 
before any of them came to pass. That's not our choice. And abortion is not fundamentally a political matter. It's a matter of what you believe about God, isn't it? It's not a political matter. This is about what you believe about God. It's a matter of what you believe about how God relates to his creation and whether or not you believe that God is good. Because in God's eyes, nobody's life was an accident. Nobody's life is an inconvenience to God. We were completely cherished and as fully developed human beings in God's image from the moment of conception. Which is why abortion to us is detestable and a tragedy in God's eyes and in ours. But here's what these verses are really about. As far as David is concerned, David is telling us that God, who has all of this intimate knowledge about us and sees everything, even all the dirt, to the depths of your innermost being, He's using all of that knowledge not to hurt you, but to protect you and preserve you. Because God is good. That's who he is. It's it's his nature. He's a giver. From the very moment of your conception, God's hand was on you to lead you and guide you towards life and blessing and a relationship with him. He's not out to trap you. He's not seeking to destroy you. He's not wishing for you to fail. He's not keeping a list of your transgressions so that he can shove it in your face in the end and humiliate you and condemn you. The person who wrote this prayer has something we all need. He has assurance. He believes and he's confident that God is for him. And he would have to believe that in order to say, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. What thoughts is he talking about? He's talking about God's thoughts towards him. All of this knowledge that God has of him personally. This is an extremely intimate, personal prayer that David is offering to God. He's saying, God, you know everything about me. You've been with me from my conception. You're going to be with me till the day I die. There's nothing I've ever done or said that you haven't seen or known, even before I said it. And you still love me. You're still with me. You still want more. That's too much. That's so precious to me. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Listen, when when you think someone is looking at you and judging you, you ever felt someone looking at you and you just made you feel uncomfortable like they were making some judgment about you, the kind of person you are? Maybe you're a mom and you're, you were in a grocery store and your toddler was throwing a tantrum. People started looking at you, giving you glares. How does that make you feel? Not very good, right? It doesn't really help the situation. What do you want them to do? Stop looking at me, Right? Stop looking at me. You don't want to be in that person's presence. You don't want them to know you. You don't want even to know them. We naturally assume that anyone who knows about all of our dirt and all of our secrets will someday use it against us. That's what we assume. But God is not like people. He's not like that. David sees himself. He realizes that as wicked and ugly as he is, God sees beauty. God sees the finished product. In fact, he sees the unformed substance and the finished product as one. And with all that knowledge, God chooses not to exploit him and not to destroy him, but instead in his mercy to protect and preserve and guide him. That's God's mercy. It's his covenant love towards us. 
And I don't know if you knew this, but this psalm is considered by many to be like the crown jewel of the psalms. Psalm 139. Psalm 23, which you heard last week. That was last week, right? Psalm 23. Peter was talking about this, 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 this whole idea of God knowing us as a shepherd, right? And everything, unpacking everything that that means. This is, this psalm is similar. God's hand over us, the way he preserves and guides us and protects us. The reason that this psalm is so precious to so many people is because it tells us that the most important, the most knowledgeable, and the most powerful, and the most amazing being in the universe sees us, and hears us, and knows us, and instead of destroying us, which is what we deserve, he wants to know more. He wants to be with us. He delights in us. He invites us into his presence. He invites us into an, a relationship with him, an intimate personal relationship with him. He sees you all the way to the bottom and still wants to know more. And this produces in David a furious passion for God that we need to. This is what David says. This is kind of how he closes the psalm. Listen to what he says. This might sound strange to you at first, but I, I want you to hear this. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So David closes the psalm by basically saying, I'm inviting God to know me and lead me. He starts by saying, God knows me and he sees everything and it kind of makes him uncomfortable. But by the end of the psalm, he's inviting it. He's inviting God's presence. And this whole rant about wicked people might sound a little misplaced, but it's not. And I know there are young people in here who who are thinking, maybe you're thinking to yourselves, isn't it bad to hate people? (laughs) My parents tell me I shouldn't hate anybody or even say the word hate, some of you. But here's the thing. You can't love God and tolerate wickedness. You can't. David's love for God, his passion for God, produces a hatred for evil. And he saw evil all around him. It was a daily threat in his kingdom, in his world, in his life, in his family even. It tore apart his family. One of my favorite commentators, Bruce Waltke, he sums it up really well. He says, David's zeal for God could not be stated more emphatically than these dozen words. Unrestrained zeal is necessary to counter effectively the enemy in the battle for religious affections. In other words, we're living in this world where our affections are being drawn and spread thin all over the place and people are vying for our attention and other things and We're tempted to find happiness away from God's presence and to find purpose and meaning away from God's presence and to invest our affections and our life and other people and things that keep us from knowing God at this intimate level. And David is saying, I don't want any part of that. I want all my affections to be where God is and nowhere else. That's all that matters, God's glory. That's where I want my affections to be. And what is really striking is this last verse. David goes, he goes from being overwhelmed by God's presence to inviting it. 
he actually comes to a place where he asks, he asks God to examine him and to know him thoroughly. He's not afraid anymore. He isn't trying to run anymore. He, he wants God to lead him every moment. Every moment. When my wife and I uh, were dating, uh, this is, actually I think this might have been after we were engaged, like shortly after we were engaged. There are a lot of things my wife didn't know about me. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation, but I, we got married older. Uh, we were in our, I was in my late 20s. My wife is a little younger than me, but I had lived a lot of life before I got married and a lot of not so good life. <laughs> a lot of life I'm not real proud of, in other words. And there are a lot of things that Vicky didn't know about me, but there was this one thing in particular that I had been keeping in the, in the dark. And I just got to the place where I knew she had to know about this thing, about me. I couldn't keep it to myself anymore. And it was the, one of the scariest things I've ever had to do was to talk to her about this because I did legitimately think if I tell her about this part of me and this part of my past, she might not stay. She, I, we might not finish together. She might end it right there. She might decide she doesn't want to know anymore. You know what I mean? Doesn't want to see anymore. If I let her see this, she might that might be the end of it. And so I really wrestled with that, but I also knew that I would never, I would be restless for the rest of our life and relationship if I didn't tell her, because if she doesn't know this, then she doesn't really know me. She's not really loving me. She's loving some version of me that's not the full, the full version. And I told her. So I told her, and it was horrible. It was horrible. It was painful. We cried. And then something amazing happened. She chose to love me. She chose to look past that, that part of my life and to love me anyway. And our relationship grew from there. And, I, and here's the thing about that. As hard as that was to do, that wasn't the last time I'd have to do that. And, and I've always been scared of showing my wife those deep, dark, ugly parts and that's not something you do once with your spouse. It's something you have to do over and over and over. And it never gets easier. I, I wish I could tell you it gets easier. It doesn't. It's always hard to do it. it, it it's, it's always a risk. Because we're always afraid. What if I show her this? Or what if I show him this? And he doesn't want to see anymore. Or doesn't want to know anymore. But that's the only way to have a relationship with somebody. This kind of life-giving relationship, it's the only way to be loved, to receive love. And this is how we have to relate to God. This is how we have to do life with God. How do we stop scrambling and hiding from the presence of God? How does the gospel lead us to say, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Search me and know me. Here's everything. Think about this. Who's the only person in the history of the world to escape the presence of God? Who's the only person to ever experience true darkness? Jesus. Where did that happen? On the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ was set apart. Set apart. Distinguished. As the atonement for our sins. God punished Jesus. God judged Jesus for our sin. And he removed his presence from Jesus as his wrath was being poured out. And utter darkness covered the land. 
in the middle of the day. And Jesus hung there totally alone and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was those three hours on the cross that God the Son experienced utter loneliness and darkness. Why did he do that? So that we could come to God and come into his presence and not be afraid. He did it so that we could come into the presence of God covered in the righteousness of Jesus and say, God, search me and know me and lead me. He did it so that we could live and walk in the light, confessing our sins to one another and forgiving each other and experiencing true life-giving relationships as brothers and sisters in God's family. So let me just ask you, are you afraid to be known? Are you afraid to be seen for who you really are? Are you afraid of God's presence? I want to invite you this morning to come into the light and to receive the verdict that God gave you when Jesus rose from the dead. That verdict is not guilty. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning for the forgiveness of your sins, you are not guilty. God sees you. He sees it all and he wants more. And that allows us to live intimately with God and other people. And there's no better life you could live. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we thank you that you see us, that nothing, no part of our past, no part of our present or future is hidden from your sight. We thank you that you are with us wherever we go. We thank you that you brought us into existence, that you created us, that we are not an accident or a mistake. We don't ever have to worry if our life is an inconvenience to you or if you're worried about or concerned about the intimate details of our life. We know that you are. We know that you take pleasure in having a relationship with us and knowing everything about us because we're made in your image for your glory, God. So today, Father, I pray that you would change our minds about you. Remove our fears And call us into your presence with confidence and assurance so that we can know you as you really are and experience the freedom that you offer us through life with Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. It's really an amazing uh, verse in in that hymn. Because on the day that Jesus returns, we are told that the heavens will be pulled back like a curtain. And Jesus will be there returning and everyone will see him and everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. But many people will be terrified at his return because they'll be exposed, completely exposed to the presence, the knowledge, the justice of God in the person of Jesus. But many people will rejoice at his coming. You know what the difference is, right? It's relationship. Those people that know God will rejoice at the coming of Jesus. Those people who love Jesus now will rejoice at his coming. We'll see him face to face and we'll, that'll be the day. That'll be the day to end all of our sorrows and troubles and fears. I don't want to be afraid on that day. I know you don't either. On that day, every secret will be disclosed. The darkness will be as light. 
And that's the day we should be looking forward to more than any other day. And so today I, I want to invite you this morning, if you are, if you need prayer, if you're going through some hard time, if, if you want to talk about something, if you want to, if you just need some encouragement and comfort, direction, guidance, whatever, we want to encourage you this morning. I'd encourage you to come to the front after we're dismissed. Um, everyone else is going to go out back into the, into the commons area, but I'm going to stay up front and maybe we could have uh, Hannah come up front and Sharon and, um, and Pastor Scott and um, anyone else who would like to, to pray for someone. You can feel free to come to the front and we'd love to encourage you this morning after we dismiss. I want to leave you with uh, the benediction this morning which comes from Matthew chapter 10 beginning in verse 28. Matthew chapter 10 beginning in verse 28. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I'm actually going to begin in verse 26. He says, this is as Jesus was going to send them out to preach the good news. He said, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who will kill, who, who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now listen to this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Thank you for being with us today. I'm going to dismiss you now. Have a great rest of your week.